I've seen it, I've experienced it, but me telling people is of no benefit to me whatsoever, because whether they believe us or not, it's not important. I know what I've seen, and that's just important to me. That's the first question. Did you take a photo? And so it immediately puts you on the defensive, because when you say no, people say, well, it didn't happen. You're on the back foot of what's your little story. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Welcome to episode 75 of Big Cat Conversations. We're coming to you around mid-May 2022. This is our View from the Train edition, featuring guests who've seen a panther-like cat out of a train window in different parts of Britain. Our first guest was a passenger, and our second guest, a bit later, is a train driver. Their train journeys were on different dates and different locations. So our first guest is giving us the passenger's perspective, and he is Mark McGowan. Mark is based in Glasgow, but we're going to hear about his sighting in 2013 as his train journey took him near Runcorn in Cheshire. Mark, hello and welcome to the show. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure, Mark, and uh, thanks for joining us and thanks for getting in touch. Before this incident, what did you know, if anything, about big cats in the wild in Britain? As a kid, we used to holiday in Devon. We used to visit Dartmoor quite a lot. There was always this kind of undercurrent of the beast of the moor, if you like. And my parents would, would kind of, you know, tell us stories about big cats. We were always fairly aware of the possibility that, you know, there was kind of big cats around. I've seen kind of news reports and, you know, the odd kind of documentary and things like that, but it wasn't really something I'd given much thought to, especially, you know, in later years. OK, well, tell us about your train journey. Back in 2013, and were you sort of concentrating as you looked out the window? Did you happen to glance and pick it up? Tell us all about what happened. I was making a journey from Glasgow to Shrewsbury. Um, I was going to a football match. End of April 2013, I'd got an early train from Glasgow, and it was on the Preston to Crew train. We had just come out of Warrington Banky Station, the train was just idling along, maybe doing 10, 15, 20 miles an hour. And it was just starting to kind of pick up pace, you know, as it was just coming out of the, the station. And I think I was just looking at my phone, perhaps, checking, you know, the next connection to crew. The train was on a, an embankment and we were up 15 feet above the field. You know, the train was kind of starting to pick up pace. And I just noticed something off to my left-hand side, it was a, a black shape, and it was moving. You know, the field was empty apart from that. I'm looking down, and I can see a cat. And I'm looking at the cat, and I'm thinking, oh, well, quite glad the train wasn't going a bit faster, because it seemed to me the cat had perhaps kind of crossed the, the railway line in front of the train. And as I'm thinking about the cat having its narrow escape, I'm starting to realise that I'm kind of not looking at a normal domestic cat. It was far bigger, far bulkier. It was moving in a much different manner. And it became very apparent to me what I was looking at. How did you judge the scale? Well, I think I was maybe, what, 
when I first saw it, maybe about 50 feet away from it, perhaps, it just seemed to be very bulky, just seemed to be heavier. The way it moved, we've had domestic cats in our family for, for years, you know, so I'm very familiar how they move and how they operate. And this was something very different. It just had a really strange way about it. Automatically, from looking at it, I knew that it wasn't a wasn't a domestic cat. Mark, in your email, you mentioned that the hedgerow was some kind of reference scale for you. The cat was was off to the side. Very quickly, it moved to the top of the end of the field, and it was moving away from me, so I didn't really get a, a great view of it. The train was starting to pick up speed, but then maybe the sighting had lasted anything between five, six seconds or so. But the thing that kind of clinched the deal for me was when it got to the kind of hedgerow at the top of the field, it kind of turned. So it looked to me as if it was moving towards the hedgerow to gain some cover. And when it turned, I managed to, to catch a profile of the cat. And that's where I really got to see some of the, some of the features. And the thing that really kind of stood out for me was the size of its shoulders. I've never seen any cat with such muscular, really pronounced shoulders like this. You know, this was very odd to look at, you know. Okay. And the locomotion, you said in the, again in the email, reading your email, you said it was half running. So it wasn't just walking. Was it because it had rushed past uh, over the railway line, do you think, or and it got that momentum? Or was there any other reason it might have been doing something other than walking? To be honest, Rick, I don't think it was really too concerned about the train. I mean, obviously the train's fairly nearby. You know, it's a, a solid mass, you know. It gave me the impression that, you know, it wasn't really fussed by it at all. You know, it was just making its way to the kind of hedgerow. I was quite happy just to find some cover and then move along. It didn't really seem too perturbed by the train at all. It wasn't spooked. It didn't seem frightened by it at all. You know, it seemed fairly fairly kind of cool in its reaction. Mm. But the locomotion was, was what, trot or a slow run? It was not just walking. It was moving reasonably fast. No, it was moving, moving with purpose. And... Uh, I'd maybe say it was a kind of trot, perhaps, you know. It wasn't going at full pelt or anything like it. It seems as if it's quite kind of relaxed in its environment. Yeah, and in terms of you recognising what it was, you instantly picked up it was feline, not some kind of dog like a Labrador whatever, did you? And what was it about it that made you realise it was feline? The initial view that I got, was fairly kind of close, you know, it was maybe 50 feet away from it, perhaps. Probably when I saw it in, in kind of profile, you could see that very kind of long tail. It was long, fairly pronounced. It was almost like a jai shape. The head was fairly kind of boxy, which seemed very kind of odd as well. And you could see as well that it was, you know, halfway up, perhaps, but the kind of hedgerow. So I think the hedge seemed to me to be fairly substantial you know so it didn't give me any impression of being anything other than a, than a cat rig. Must have been interesting having the very quick change of distance because the train at the angle of the train's movement took it away from you 
but still in view. It must have been very frustrating to lose the view of it once you were sort of clocking that this was something interesting that you might want to watch a bit a bit longer. But to have that quick change of distance and be lucky enough to see it up close first, that must have been interesting. Yeah, I think I kind of realised immediately the kind of gravity of the situation. You know, like I said, I'd kind of gone from, from thinking, oh, this cat's had a narrow escape to thinking, hold on a second, what am I looking at here? This is totally caught me by surprise. You know, it's not what you would expect. Another kind of aspect as well was I had my phone in my hand, you know, while I'm looking at this thing and, and it just didn't. When I've spoken to people about it, they've kind of said, oh, you could have taken video, you could have had a picture, potentially. But yeah, it just didn't occur to me to do any of those things. I was pretty much kind of transfixed and, and trying to drink up as much kind of detail as I possibly could, Rick, you know. So, and I'm not sure what kind of picture I could have taken, you know. I thought it would have been worthwhile. You'd have been going at it some to get one within five or six seconds, though, I think, wouldn't you? I think so, yeah. And in hindsight, I'm glad I didn't. I would have hated to have lost any of the kind of view of it, you know, by fumbling around and trying to kind of switch modes on phones. So, so yeah. And what about the frustration of having the train take the view away from you? There's kind of two ways to look at it, you know. One is we just didn't get enough time, you know. I didn't get enough time to look at it, but. In the reverse, you know, I'd kind of mentioned that the train wasn't going as fast as it as it could have been. We could have hurtled past it, you know, 100 miles an hour, and I could have had the most fleeting glimpse of it. And I think that would have been worse, just seeing something just for a second or two and always kind of wondering what it was rather than getting a good five or six seconds and being fairly convinced that what I saw was not a domestic cat. Do you think other passengers might have seen it? Well, as soon as the cat was out of view, I'll be honest, I was pretty exhilarated. <laughs> you know, I kind of realised what I saw and, and I was pretty excited by it. And my first thought was to just to check in case someone else had seen it as well. And I kind of stood up and I kind of caught myself and I thought, all right, okay, how are you going to approach this? Are you going to ask random strangers if they saw a big panther in the field a couple of seconds ago you know so I, I kind of thought about it changed kind of tack and, and just had a look and look around and just see if there was anyone else you know kind of surprised gasping yeah you know because i think if MD was sitting across from me on the train that i probably saw my, my jaw kind of hit the table you know it was um quite an effect but i didn't see anyone everyone was you know just acting kind of normally for me, there wasn't really any kind of opportunity to maybe kind of nip in there and say, oh, you know, you look a bit kind of shaken, you know. But standing up and kind of looking around the other side of the carriage, you could see the kind of back end of some kind of housing estate, the back end of the suburbs of Warrington, perhaps. And I was kind of thinking, well, is this a place where a big cat would dwell, you know, so that was the first initial kind of doubt that I had. Subsequently, I've done a bit of kind of research and, and people are seeing them in urban kind of locations, so it kind of put my mind at ease a little bit. Yeah, I guess it was, the geography of it was quite a shock to think it was so close to Warrington and Runcorn. At that time, you had no knowledge of how close they get to town sometimes. 
No, it's, it's not what, what I expected. I mean, my limited knowledge of, of wildcats were very much, you know, the preferred kind of moorlands and maybe forested kind of areas, you know, and they were tucked away, far away from humans. Runcorn area does get reports. I've had a report from a very urban part of Runcorn once at a rural show. A lady came in, she was on holiday from uh, Runcorn area down in um, Devon, I think it was, one of the Devon shows this was. And she said she was totally shocked. Her son was going for an interview at a building in Runcorn. She was waiting in the car outside and she said there was a bit of wasteland nearby where she was parked and it sort of went across the road right in front of her car and into the wasteland came from nowhere as it were she was really shocked and quite surprised and a little bit scared even though she was seeing it out of the windscreen but that was you know full-on urban situation in Runcorn now when you look at a map of that area it, it maybe it's where they're sort of turning the corner at the coast coming round from the the Wirral and that sort of part of Cheshire but uh, it still is surprising once you get past kind of Warrington and into kind of Runcorn you've got that estuary area haven't you where it's not as populated as some of our parts. So the shock element, I can completely concur what your witness from, from Runcorn felt. You know, it was just not what I expected. One minute I'm, I'm on the train worrying about my connection at crew. And then the next thing I, I know, I'm looking at the window and seeing a large panther move across the field. The shock and surprise, it was just so out of place. Did you immediately want to go home and look it up on the internet and think about other sightings and who did you tell and did you elect not to tell some people because you feared ridicule? What kind of judgments did you make about all of that? Well, I was heading to to Shrewsbury and I was meeting a a group of friends for lunch before the game and frankly, I I couldn't wait to share my story. You know, I was absolutely elated by it. People know me, so they, they know I'm not going to be creating some kind of kind of story, you know, to keep people amused in the pub. But again, you can imagine, you know, there was a, a bit of ridicule. But to be fair, you know, some of the guys did kind of say, you know, we're from Shropshire. There's often articles in the, the local newspaper, the, the Shropshire Star, I think it is. They seem to be fairly aware of them in their kind of area as well. And your mates were soft on you, basically. Yeah, which I was, I was glad about. You know, of course, we got the old joke about, you know, starting beers early on the train, of course, you know, but um, that was only to be expected. Great. OK. Now, the next thing is you already had an interest in Sasquatch and Bigfoot. You got in touch with me, as did our next guest, the train driver guest, because you heard me on Sasquatch tracks a very decent podcast in America which discusses Bigfoot and Sasquatch things mainly, but also uh, they sometimes uh, discuss big cat sightings in America and they had me on to sort of discuss the parallel issues here in Britain and we got on to talking Bigfoot and Sasquatch as well. So you had a an interest in Sasquatch and, and relic hominoids already. Would some people, do you think, say, well, you're prone to see a weird creature because you've got this interest? You know, did you have anybody make that point back to you? Personally, not really. I think people just took my sighting at face value. But I think as a whole, you know, if you're kind of preconditioned to have a, you know, an interest in cryptozoology, then, you know, people might kind of think, well, was it a domestic cat he saw and, and he's got 
cryptozoology in the brain and you know has he saw something something else you know so yeah it's, it's possible yeah well it's good that you haven't got tangled up in that baggage because uh, you know i think it can happen people can be dismissed if they're seen to have an interest in these unorthodox topics and in terms of bigfoot and sasquatch how do you look at the parallels? I mean, I, I've had to. I mean, I once was attending a meeting on mountain lions in America, in Colorado, and there happened to be a meeting on Bigfoot two days later in the same area. I just noticed in the local press. So I went along and I thought, if this, if we just change the name of the meeting to Big Cats from Bigfoot, it would be very similar to you know the sorts of events that I help run and manage and facilitate back in Britain. You know, people from all walks of life, very plausible, consistent witnesses, very shocked witnesses, witnesses considering whether they might not tell everybody about what they'd happened. You know, the same kinds of psychological perspectives and the same kind of consistency in emotions and all, all the sort of same rabbit holes. Have you picked that up because you now have an interest in both the topics? Yes, certainly in terms of, of citing reports. I think that's where the, the kind of main parallel comes in because when you try to compare, you know, a known species with something like a, a relict hominoid, then there's a, a massive gap there. You know, we shouldn't have big cats in the UK. And people who come out and want to share their kind of stories of seeing big cats in the UK are, are certainly going to face some difficulties. And it's the same with Sasquatch in America. But yeah, the parallels are definitely there between the, the two subjects. Do you think Bigfoot and Sasquatch is that bar is much higher? The weight of evidence on making your claim is is that much tougher? Yeah, I think I think without a doubt, Rick, the big cat issue in the UK, you know, is fairly. I'm not going to say it's fairly mainstream, but when I hear about your tooth pit investigations by universities, you know, it really delights me. You know, when when science looks at a problem like this and it kind of says, right, okay, well, there may well be something for us to look at. Whereas, you know, in terms of you know Sasquatch and Bigfoot in America, science has definitely shied away from from getting involved you know i think there's too much kind of baggage involved there the idea that there could be whatever sasquatch is be it something like gigantopithecus or, or be it a, a relic hominid science has you know pretty much turned its back on it and to say well we need more than multiple reports and you know a handful of uh, footprint casts and I understand that. You know, I think there's far too much at stake. You know, there's been episodes in the past, like Piltdown Man, where people, you know, in the scientific community have had their fingers burnt. And I can understand the reticence in getting involved in such a, a thorny subject. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting, you mentioned toothpick analysis. I would say that it's an actual similar type of process to trying to identify the mid-tarsal break, the, the alleged mid-tarsal break that gives the um, Sasquatch this flexible foot. So you're looking for you know, an aspect of the body, a physical part of the body in the signs it leaves. And at least you know, one scientist, Jeffrey Meldrum, is trying to do that and has got a big sample size. What I would say, though, about science trying to address the topic is I think institutionally we do evade big cats in Britain as well, though it is just too awkward for people in a professional status. And I think it is evaded, actually, a fair bit, which I'm sure Sasquatch stuff is in America as well. I was lucky enough to spend 
an afternoon with Dr. Jeff Meldrum back in 2016, and, and we had a chat exactly about that, the difficulties that he's faced, you know, from a professional standpoint. And, and he found tenure really difficult to achieve purely because of his, his interest in Sasquatch. He was strong enough to kind of stick to his principles and not back down on what he felt was, was something worth exploring. But I'm quite sure that perhaps other scientists of lesser ilk would have kind of backed off and said, right, OK, yeah, hold on, I've got a career to think about here. You know, so it, it definitely does happen. And, and I think Grover Trant's experienced the same thing, albeit a bit kind of earlier. You know, it's up to the people who are investigating, it's up to researchers to upper game, you know, there's evidence out there, go and find it and really force science's hands. I take your point, but I think the trouble is you need resources as well. You you can get lucky and, and obviously the more time you spend in the woods or the great outdoors, the more chance you might get lucky. But it is a resource factor. And if you you know if you don't have the institutional backing, you don't have so many resources, so much time. So that is part of the dilemma, but I do understand it all. Looking back at the big cats in Britain picture, what do you make of the subject and what's your attitude to big cats being here and possibly naturalising? The idea that, you know, you get escapees, I couldn't doubt that for a second. I'm fairly certain that that happens, you know, whether it happened back in the 70s after a change in the law, whether it, you know, happened before then. But yeah, the idea that these animals have kind of found a way to, to find each other, to reproduce in the wild, you know, to find habitat that's conducive, I think it's absolutely wonderful. My fear is, is what happens, you know, if they do get very successful, their numbers do kind of increase. I'm not really sure what the take would be. Would they be declared uh, an invasive kind of species? Would we be quite happy just to accept them as part of the, the natural fauna here in the UK? I presume you still do train journeys. Do you look out on the train, especially at dawn and dusk, like, like I do? I mean, I don't make train journeys so often now, but it does strike me that train journeys at dawn and dusk with good vantage points over the landscape, particularly bits of countryside that um, are not very disturbed, it is an ideal time to look for big cats, actually. Without a doubt. And I think my sighting kind of goes to, to show to, to anyone who may come from a, an urban environment that, you know, a sighting is possible. You know, you just need to keep your wits about you and your, your eyes open, you know. And, and I, I was just fortunate. I was just in the right place at the right time. But it could be literally anyone who's passing through. But yeah, it's remarkable. You know, it was just something that stayed with me forever. And of course now... Last two or three years, the press has been quite active with reports from Cheshire and uh, next door in, in Wales, around the corner in, in Wirral. So it's all adding to that axis of uh, sightings. Do you feel sort of partly validated because of that recent material that's been in the press a lot? Yeah, there's been a lot of sightings and, and happenings in the in that particular kind of area. So I kind of put my mind at ease to think, right, OK, I'm not the only one here. And to find out that that's kind of bubbling under again and and you've got that kind of activity, it's really good to hear. Thank you ever so much for giving that perspective, uh, Mark. Is there anything finally you'd like to say that you don't think we've covered that you think is a relevant point? Is there anything else that you'd like to touch on? Thanks for having me on. Thanks for bringing the the Sasquatch element into the, the conversation. A big kind of message in terms of 
keeping in touch or learning about Sasquatch is, is just being very careful about the material that's out there, you know. Books by, you know, certain authors, Grover Krantz, Jeff Meldrum, anything that's kind of science-based is definitely the place to start. I think um, John Napier's Bigfoot book as well is, is, is excellent. Bigfoot's quite a frightening, scary prospect, you know, so you've got different kind of elements to, to kind of Bigfoot now. It's almost like a, a B-movie kind of monster, if you like, you know, scaring people in the woods. It's just a matter of just being careful what material you're looking at. Stick to the source material as closely as you can. Yeah, yeah. It is interesting how these things can be sort of branded and categorised, isn't it? To the sceptics or the people who who are not exposed to big cat evidence, they would assume that big cats are a bit scary and frightening, but so few witnesses do have that approach. And of course, you seeing one through a train window presumably thought it was more fascinating than anything else. There wasn't any terror or scared factor from your perspective? I think I was very fortunate in that kind of regard. I think I would have had a completely different kind of perspective on it if I had maybe been in the field at the time, 20 yards away. <laughs> you know, it might have been a completely different kind of scenario for Rurik. But um, yeah, I, I was delighted to be behind the glass, looking down on it from afar. Yeah, it was, it was a perfect sighting for me. There was no danger involved, just wonder. Well, great. Mark, thank you very much for being our guest on this View from the Train episode. And uh, very good that we can compare your view now with uh, Billy's coming up as a train driver perspective in a different region of England. Do get in touch if anything else happens. But for now, thanks ever so much for being a guest on Big Cat Conversations. Oh, you're welcome, Rick. Thanks for having me on and I'll be in touch. For our next guest, we welcome Billy, who is a train driver, Big Cat Witness, and Billy had a sighting at the front of a freight train in the early 1990s. Billy is based in Teesside, and for our overseas listeners, that is in what we might call Lower North East England, or if you go by the geography of football teams like I do, that's Middlesbrough and Hartlepool territory. Billy, thanks for getting in touch, and welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Rick. Much appreciated. Good stuff. Do you support Middlesbrough or Hartlepool or none of them? Middlesbrough, but I don't go to the football much these days. Good stuff. OK. Right, before this incident, the normal question when we introduce guests. Did you know about Big Cats before you had the sighting? And if you did, did you have a sort of view about whether it was plausible or not? When I was younger, I had a book that was all supernatural and all that sort of stuff. Ghosts, UFOs, Loch Ness Monster. And there was a section on the Beast of Bodmin Moor. But I did think that it was more legend than truth. And um, one night I was out with a a driver, well, early hours of the morning. And this driver, he's a lovely old fella. He's just turned 92, funnily enough. He was the sort of bloke who wouldn't make a story up. He just said out of the blue one night when we were going up to Port Clarence, uh, near Billingham, he said, uh, you're not going to believe this, but I've seen a big cat at this foot crossing. Straight away, I did believe him, and uh, he went on to tell me about this cat that he'd seen, and it, it, as he'd approached the crossing, it, it just stood up and walked across in front of his train and down the other side. When was that, Billy? How long ago? How long previous to that conversation? This will have been when he was telling me 
about 88, 89, somewhere around about there. And they assumed that he'd had the sighting sometime in at least the last the year previous to that. The place in particular at Billingham, there is a nature reserve near there. It's quite wooded. The environment would probably work for a big cat. Yeah. Did he say what colour it was? He just said a black cat had uh, crossed across in front of him. He's a bloke who, who, who we wouldn't have to tell me that for any reason whatsoever. He, he never knew I had an interest in anything like that. So it was like out of the blue when he told me. You believed him because he was a plausible guy, did you? Yeah, exactly, exactly that. And also, because I had an, in, an interest in paranormal stuff, shall we say, it straight away piqued my interest. And I was like, oh, yeah, I, I believe you. <laughs> like I say, he told me the story of how it had crossed, went down the, the bank into the nature reserve. And also, I remember seeing a programme on TV, and I'm sure it was an ex-policeman, and he had a car with, like, a camera mounted on top of his roof, and he was going around trying to capture um, footage of big cats, but I'm not sure if that's whether I'm remembering that correctly or not. There certainly was a guy who used to work for Met Police who was on a couple of documentaries in the 1990s, so he was early 1990s. I've never caught up with him. Right. That may be who you're talking about. I've just got like a, a vague memory of watching a, a, like, it. was like a news item, you know, like a short story on a news programme. OK, it could have been somebody else then, because this guy was on, you know, half-hour documentaries a couple of times. So you were a bit primed for it with your background. Yeah, yeah. I believed in it, shall we say. Yeah, and we'll come on. We're going to have a chat about uh, other other related parallel matters later on in the second half of our conversation. Mm. We'll we'll come back to this point about people might say, "Oh, you're prone to seeing this sort of thing because you're interested in weird, unusual, you know, ghost and UFO yeah. and paranormal stuff." You know, I think that can work both ways. You know, you could say some people are extra objective and extra knowing what boxes to tick because of that. Yeah. But first of all, yeah, let's get to the action. Tell us about the train journey, uh, the location of it, and the type of train you were in, and what happened. Well, it was a freight train. We were working a freight train out of Tees Yard. It was going south. We were heading towards York, where we were going to get relieved. I wasn't driving on this occasion, and I was with another driver. And as we were approaching, it's between Thirsk and York. There's a, an area called Tolerton. We were approaching there. We were just chatting usual about football, whatever. And the driver, he just suddenly went, what the, is that? And I was pointing forward and uh, I looked to where he was pointing and we could see this large black animal. And the first instinct, I was like, well, it's a dog. But we we knew instantly that it, it wasn't a dog. It wasn't the jizz of a dog, you know. As we were approaching, we could see that it was definitely not a dog by now. It was a black animal. It had a long, thick black tail. And it's hard to describe, but it was like its shoulder blades seemed prominent as it was walking, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Listeners will have heard um, Mark, our passenger, who's come on before you. I know you haven't heard him as you speak on this one he said exactly the same and he said as the train view took him away from the animal because he was up close first of all he could see that even more pronounced at the distance that the, the high shoulder blades 
yeah, yeah. So as it was walking, it was it was just nonchalant. It was just slinking along. Yeah, just didn't have a care in the world, really. The driver who first spotted it, he was like, yes, yes, it is a big cat. Like, and, it, and he shut the window of the loco. And I said, what do you think it's going to do? Jump in. It's like <laughs> 50, 50 yards away. <laughs> so, yeah. And the, the closest we got to it was when we were alongside. would have been about 50, 60 yards away at best. And we could see most definitely that this wasn't a dog. It was definitely a cat. Was it aware of the train? No, not not at all. Not a care in the world. It didn't look at us or anything. It just kept walking along in the field. And it was wasn't hugging the fence line or anything. It was it was out 50, 60 yards into the field. Plus we had a about a 20, 30 foot height advantage on it. We were looking down. So, you know, we could we had a good look at it. But then we were obviously past it and when we looked back. We couldn't see it anymore due to bushes and trees. You're saying on your email that actually the freight train goes much slower, so it wasn't like you were you know, propelling forward at a massive uh, high speed that meant it was just a sort of glance. You did get long enough to build up to it and to look at it sideways because of the slower speed of the freight train. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. We would have been doing 60 mile an hour because that would be our maximum speed. So, yeah, I would say that when we first between sighting it and passing it was possibly 20 seconds, which is quite a long time, really, to look at something. Trains don't have dash cams or didn't then, like vehicles, or, or do they? You know, or they didn't then, obviously. They do now, but uh, no, no, we didn't then. We didn't even have mobile phones. <laughs> yeah, so early 90s this was. Yeah, yeah, I think it was about 90. 293. I think it was just prior to the start of privatisation. We were still British Rail at the time. And were you both instantly in agreement that it was a feline? And it, did it help to sort of validate each other, to confirm each other's assumptions? Like I say, when the driver spotted it, my first initial thought was it's a Labrador. But sort of more or less instantly after thinking that, we knew it looked wrong. The fact that my mate would have spotted a dog before, he must have subconsciously known that was something odd because I don't think he would have remarked on the sighting the way he did initially. He's seen loads of dogs, so he would have just assumed it was a dog, but something about it had made him think, what is that? Yeah. So, and, and like say, I looked, I went, oh, it's a dog, but then... We were both more like, that's no dog. Yeah, how, how are you gauging the scale? Well, it, it, it was large. And from the distance we were at, maybe when on its first, on the first sighting of it, maybe 450, 500 yards, it still looked big. It stood out. Definitely from that distance in the size, you would have assumed a dog. I mean, you do see people walking dogs in the fields alongside the track. You know, it, it's not unusual but this definitely stood out as not being a dog. Like, say, by the time we'd closed on it and the closer we were getting and got alongside it, we could see definitely without any shadow of a doubt that this was a cat. 
you think it had been on the tracks and walking? You know, how do you think it was using the railway line environment? Was it actually sort of coming down from the embankment of the tracks, or was it nearby, or uh, is that difficult to tell? Difficult to tell, but we did sort of get the impression it had come down the embankment and was walking out into the field, but it may have already just been following the uh, line side anyway. I can't say 100% that it had crossed the railway. What sort of things stood out? Colour and structure and form first, and and, uh, then behaviour and confidence and that sort of thing. Well, it was just jet black, and it was the tail. That was the thing that made us think it wasn't a dog. The tail was long, it was thick, like uniformly thick. It was held out behind it, not rod straight, but it was just held out behind it, unlike a dog would have been wagging. This wasn't, this was just out straight from it, from its rear. Had a rigidity. Yeah, it was rigid. Definitely not wagging or bobbing. Like when a dog is walking, if it's just walking normally, it'll st- it still has a, a sort of bob to it. And a dog will naturally wag its tail regardless when it hasn't got a care in the world. Any other standout sort of features of, of its form? I can't say for definite about its ear shape because... That was something I would never have even contemplated looking at. It was the shoulder blades, the way they were prominent as it walked, that sort of stood out as well. It wasn't spooked or anything. It was very confident. It knew where it was walking. And it, like I said earlier, it didn't have a care in the world. It didn't look at us. It just looked at the direction it was walking. It looked strong, muscly, I suppose. I can't say for definite it looked muscly, but I can say for definite it didn't look scrawny. It looked healthy, definitely looked healthy, yeah. And no other witnesses, but you were the only two guys on the train at the front and you were supporting the driver, presumably. Yeah, yeah, that's correct, yeah. There was only the two of us, but we were both glad that we were both there because I don't think anyone would have possibly believed us if it had been just the one of us. Before you got to your relief situation when you got out of the train and, and started talking to colleagues. How were you feeling emotionally having had that experience? Well, to be honest, I was over the moon. It was just a fantastic thing for me that to happen, obviously being interested in paranormal stuff. I know it's not paranormal, but for something that shouldn't be there. Yeah, I, I was over the moon and, and yeah, my mate was excited as well. He thought it was brilliant. And I felt privileged that I've witnessed something that I shouldn't have been able to witness. We ought to actually just check what time of day it was, this early summer evening. So it wasn't really dusk time, which would be a good time for seeing one. It was before that, was it? Well, it'd been between about half seven, eight o'clock, maybe about quarter eight, something like that on the evening. It was um, in the summer, full daylight. There was, you know, it didn't get dark till late. So, yeah, it was a, a good daylight sighting. Okay. Incidentally, had you seen any deer or rabbits or anything around that area? Do you think it was there because it would have been a good time for its prey in that locality? Or might it have just been going from A to B? I don't recall seeing any deer or rabbits at that time. Well, I obviously wasn't looking. But the railway along there is rife with rabbits and deer. You see them constantly uh, all all hours of the day. They're not, they don't hide like, you know, in daylight or anything. They're there, regular. 
but it, it isn't uh, secluded where we've seen it. There's farmyard, farmland and farms and stables and things around the area. It's, it's not isolated. Actually, as we're talking about the railway line environment, on episode 40, which you've probably heard, we had another Billy who was a railway line inspector. Apart yeah. from his amazing sighting and situation that he told us about, he also discussed the railway line corridor environment as a potential good place for a big cat, a big sort of apex predator to move along because it's a good linear route through the landscape and a place to snaffle prey because sometimes deer and other mammals would be trapped within the fencing and also they'd be heard. They, you know, they could be uh, walking on the ballast. The vibrations could mean that um, a cat could pick it up. What's your view on that from being a train driver? Yeah, yeah, I agree totally. Um, railway lines are a natural wildlife corridor. Where I had my sighting was actually on the East Coast main line. So it's not quite like um, Billy did on his line that he was walking on this inspection. More of a branch line by the sounds of it. The East Coast mainland would be less likely used as a, a wildlife corridor by an apex predator. But saying that, foxes, badgers, they all use railway lines. So I don't see why not perhaps that a big cat in that area wouldn't use it, you know. Like he was saying on his episode, you do get deer trapped in. Uh, you know, where they put fencing up. Many a time I've had uh, deer running alongside the train trying to headbutt their way through fencing to escape and they just can't get out. Luckily, they'll turn around and run back the other way. So definitely a predator that was going after a, a deer could easily capture one that can't really escape. Plus, you get quite a bit of roadkill, so some easy pickings as well. On your... Working days as a driver, Billy, how often would you see a deer or a, or a fox or a badger along the line or on the line or in your work? All the time. Any time of the day, all, all the time. I've seen deer on every, every single trip. Badgers, not so much, but foxes, rabbits, hares and deer all the time. Although there's the noise of the train, there's no human activity and it's just a, a corridor of no human disturbance, really, other than the odd noisy big machine like a train that goes along. And, and they've got sort of scrub and habitat that suits them, presumably. All of those sort of boxes are ticked for them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like even on the East Coast Main Line, you'll see them regular. I could guarantee I'd see one every trip. Do you? What about, incidentally, the vibration of the rails? If if that cat, say, had been on the line as your freight train approached, would it have picked up noise and vibration and thought, hang on, I've got to move from here because something's coming, you know, there's a, some disturbance factor? Or is that not always the case? Yeah, that, that does happen, yeah. I've seen it with foxes and deer. They'll get out the way long before you reach them. So I would assume that a big cat would do the same. But unfortunately, sometimes you do have collisions, you do impact wildlife, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, that does happen, yeah. Yeah, it must be a rotten part of your job. Yeah, it, it is, um, especially if you enjoy the wildlife like I do. I, I like to go bird watching and that and, uh, and what have you. And yeah, it can knock you back a little bit, you know, if you run a deer over or something, yeah. Because there's absolutely nothing you can do about it, really, is there? 
no, no, not really. You can't stop. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. So where did the train come to a halt and you uh, were relieved or and got out and started talking to other people and what happened? We got to York to get relief. And then the train went on to wherever it was going. I can't remember now. And we had to travel back to our depot. But we'd been talking about, should we report it, this sighting? And we undenied. So when we got to York Station, where we got relief, we thought, right, we'll go to the transport police office and we'll let them know. But unfortunately, that time of the evening, by the time we'd got to York, maybe about half past eight, the office was shut on the station. So we contacted the signaller uh, by a phone in the mess room and we said, look, we've seen a, a big cat in the Tolleton area. We thought we should report it in case there's any, um, anybody out working on the track. But um, the signalman just basically kept on saying, so you've seen a large animal then, a dog, and he just wouldn't have it. We kept, <laughs> I repeated it about five times, you know, that, no, it was definitely a big cat. No, so you've seen a dog, so you've seen a dog, okay. They just wouldn't have it. So that was that. Uh, not, never heard nothing else about it. We just felt that we needed to report it. I think there's some sort of validation on our own part as well, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, very quickly, you're reminding me now that um, Frank Tunbridge here in Gloucestershire, and this was last year, so 2021, he had a guy who was a, on a maintenance crew between Swindon and Bristol, and the guy was returning back home, and he was about a mile from the railway line, and it was about 2am. He saw on this sort of rural road coming back from the, the railway line work, a big cat at night was obviously shocked. He knew nothing about it and phoned Frank the next morning because he wanted to know Frank's view about whether it was safe for that maintenance crew to carry yeah. on working along the line the following days. And Frank sort of reassured him and, and said, you know, probably been about for years and they don't tend to sort of hassle yeah. hassle people individually, let alone in groups. And But there you go. You know, that was a similar situation. That was a crew member did actually see one and thought about the implications for him and his colleagues working there the following days. Yeah, well, to see one in the wild in the UK, yeah, it's going to make you start thinking, should I be working here? <laughs> Luckily, more dangerous if you're a deer. Yes, definitely, definitely. Yeah, good stuff. Sorry, I, I did interrupt you, but I thought that was a good one to mention while it occurred to me. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so we travelled back to Thornaby Depot on the passenger train, and when we got back and we spoke to the supervisor, I'm not sure if he actually knew in advance whether the signalman at York had rang the depot and told him that we'd made this report or not. I can't remember. Hmm. But he, he took the mick a bit. But bearing in mind, this was sort of like now getting on for 10 o'clock at night. There wasn't many people about. But uh, over the next couple of days, going back into work, I would tell everyone, me, I, I, I wasn't bothered. I, I loved it. Word got round. And then Instead of um, having the mick took out of us, which we totally expected, people started, other drivers started telling us about their sightings, which was quite a surprise, really. You know, we were expecting to get ribbed and uh, it didn't happen. It turned out that quite a few people had been holding on to the sightings they'd had because they didn't feel they could tell anyone. You know, no one would believe them. Opened the floodgates in a way. A friend of mine, Works for First Great Western, and he did put an email round to all his colleagues, including you know drivers. 
Yeah. And he didn't get any reaction. Now, whether he didn't get any reaction because people didn't want to admit it or because, you know, just from that sample of people and train drivers, there hadn't been any sightings. It did surprise me. I was expecting he would ferret some people out. Yeah. It Maybe it's the way it was done, but also because sometimes if you sort of very formally ask a question, people keep their heads down, but maybe because you were more informal and it, the vibe was more sort of friendly and cheerful that you were admitting yeah. you had this sighting, but it was the sort of kind of situation where people might chirp up. So yeah, can you give us any examples or, or did you remember whether people were talking about black ones and tan-coloured ones as well or and were they all in that region? Or Yeah, they were all uh, black, all the ones I've heard of. The majority of them, can't remember how many people had said they'd seen them now, but there was quite a few that was in the area that we'd seen ours. So that was quite good validation. Within about maybe a five miles on either side of our sighting, so in that 10-mile stretch, people had seen them there, yeah. Going back a long time or just all relatively recently or both? A bit of both, really. A couple of people had, had told me that they'd seen them years ago prior to mine. A few people had said, yeah, that they'd seen them recently compared with mine. So within the time frame of seeing mine on some of them, yeah. And did that convince people who weren't in that group of, of witnesses? Did other people hear that and think, well, oh, blimey, maybe there is something, you know, I might have been sceptic, but, uh, you know, given that what's um, happening now, did it influence others? I think it did, actually, yeah. What would happen would be you'd be sat in the mess room or you'd be on a train with someone. The conversation would get round. Even people who hadn't witnessed them would be more convinced on it because they'd say, oh, well, tell us then. Tell us what you what happened. And and I'd say, oh, yeah, I'd tell them the story. And then they'd say, oh, yeah, I've heard, I've heard about these cats and I've spoke to so-and-so and he reckons he's seen one. And, and I'd say, oh, yeah, I've spoke to him as well and he's told me this. And, and you know, the conversation would flow and it, there would be no... Are you talking out your backside or anything like that? People were pretty much believing it. Maybe one or two probably thought we were crackers, but overall, it was accepted that we'd seen them and and the other people started mentioning them. It became a positive sort of talking point. Yeah, people would bring it up to me. I wouldn't have to prompt them. You know, people wanted to know. It was good. It It was a good topic. Did you see it as sensitive? beyond where you worked. Did you think it was too sensitive to reveal to other people? Not at all, no. We were never pulled up or anything about talking about it or anything. Back then, things like this, there was no internet, there was no social media, so you weren't showing the company's name up in a bad light. Whereas now, you you don't post stuff on social media for any company, whether you're train driving or anything, to do with work, because it's the company's name. Yes, it could rebound. Exactly, yeah. And, of course, because there was no social media, it didn't get beyond our group. It might get to a couple of other depots where you knew drivers, but didn't go out into the wider public, shall we say. In terms of how it influenced you beyond that, you were saying in your email that you started then taking even more of an interest in the landscape and countryside around as you, as you worked. So tell us about that. You started scanning the fields more in the hope of seeing one again, did you? Yeah, yeah. And to this day, I still do, but uh, I've never seen anything. No big cats anymore, unfortunately. If you do look for something, you don't see it. We weren't looking for a big cat and we seen one. That's the difference. You can't force it. No, no. 
I like to go bird watching, and um, I think other bird watchers might know what I'm getting at here. But you get this sort of inbuilt sense where you can see a bird without looking for it. I can do that. I can be going along, and I'll spot a bird that I wasn't looking for. And people go, how did you see that? And I just, I can't explain it, but I can see it. So I can see deer and I can see foxes in fields as I'm driving along the train. But I'm not looking for them. Back to that jizz word that you used earlier, which I think is a very good word. It's a bird watcher's word. It's a military word as well, isn't it? We've done it on Word of the Week, actually. Maybe we should revisit jizz, but we might use jizz again as our Word of the Week. But what is that? Is that peripheral vision and picking up the vibes and knowing the shape and the movement? What is that all about, do you think? I think it's that. I know it sounds bizarre, but I can spot them without looking for them. So if I'm not looking for a deer, which nine times out of ten I'm concentrating on driving my train, hmm. but I will see a deer way over in a field without – I don't know how I see it, but I see it. And I think if, I, if there was another big cat that was going to come my way, I would see it. I've never seen one, unfortunately, since that day. Yeah, and that's about experience as well, isn't it? And um, it does happen to big cat witnesses. They do see them again, some of them. And I think it is perhaps like you're saying, you know, they, they absolutely know what kind of movement and vibes and outline yeah. and poise and posture to just pick up. Whether they're deliberately or subconsciously looking for it, they are sort of on the case, as it were. So it could happen, yeah. You're still out driving as a train driver, aren't you? So you you might get a chance. Yeah, well, I, I keep looking every day, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the British train network is often largely embankments, isn't it? So you have got a good view into the landscape. I don't travel by train a lot in other countries. I'm told in some places, some countries, you know, often you're in ditches more than embankments. And so yeah. you don't have such a good uh, view of the landscape. But Britain's a great place to have uh, lovely panoramic views from and lovely views of wildlife. Totally agree. Yeah, and you're right. We do have good panoramic views on pretty much all of the network, really. Branch lines, you might tend to be in cuttings, and we definitely have good views where we should possibly see something, yeah. Our other guest, Mark, stated to me after he came off the microphone, as we were sort of just um, saying goodbye to each other and closing down, he actually said, oh, I forgot to say that um, when his train changed at crew, and, of course, Crewe is a big junction uh, and a big hub. Yeah. So he got out and train changed, and he thought that there was a possibility that his train driver might change as well, and he had time. And so he raced to the front of the train, he said, and wanted to see if the train driver got out because he was desperate to know if the train driver had yeah. seen it because he <laughs> thought it, it came from the front of the tracks and there was a – if anybody – had seen it because he checked his carriage and nobody was gasping and showing, you know, some kind of reaction. Yeah. Like, oh, my God, I've just seen a, a big cat. So he thought, well, I'm the only witness in the carriage. But uh, unfortunately, the train driver did not get out and did not change and he didn't get a chance to have that conversation. Anyway, it's good I've mentioned that. You know, he wanted me to relay it and forgot to as we were chatting with the mics on. <laughs> Do you ever get accosted by passengers? Well, when, when we get stopped in stations yeah we get quite a lot of train spotters might come up and ask us questions (laughs) but more about trains and techie stuff yeah no one's uh, from the public have ever asked me if i've seen a big cat (laughs) good stuff right now you got in touch because you heard me on sasquatch tracks and that's exactly what happened to mark the uh, the other big cat witness and so like mark you have an interest in bigfoot and sasquatch 
Uh, so it'd be interesting yep. to have your view on, are there connections? Are there parallels? If we are studying big cats in Britain, should we be interested in anything we can learn from the study of Sasquatch and Bigfoot in North America? What do you reckon? It's a difficult question to answer, really, because what we're dealing with is a known animal. But when it comes to Sasquatch, there's no proof of it existing. You know, we, we know big cats exist elsewhere in the world. All we're trying to prove is that they're living in the wild of the UK. Yeah, there's reference for them. They're in reference books. They're the stuffed ones in museums. They're they're in zoos. Yeah. But what about witness reports and how you gauge a witness sighting and that sort of thing? Is there things we can learn? Definitely. The witness sightings, you can't have that many people sighting something and them all being wrong and lying or making it up, whatever. You've got to really take in everybody's sighting as having some truth in it, whether they actually see a big cat or whether they see a Sasquatch. They've seen something. You've got to take that on board and not ridicule people as well, I think. That's something that will put people off or even encourage people to um, make stuff up to try and validate it themselves. Because they overreact. Yeah, yeah. So they might start adding stuff, you know, just to try and make themselves more plausible. When really, if they've seen something, you should just say what you've seen. Don't embellish it because then you're totally making the, the sighting invalid. And what do you make of the view of from people, particularly on Sasquatch and Bigfoot, if they don't go with it and don't believe it, that it's totally preposterous, it's totally outrageous uh, as a proposition to consider? Because, you know, some people are like that on big cats, a refusal to believe. Do you see parallels in that kind of shocking and the mocking reactions? Yeah, yes, I do. And I think that in this day of social media now, I think that I probably wouldn't have mentioned my sighting in today's day because people are too quick to completely dismiss you without giving any proof to why they're dismissing you or, you know, giving any reasonable argument to it. So I think you get the same with, like, say, Sasquatch, big cats, people. If they don't believe it, they just want to put you down. So that's a, a parallel when it comes to people, whether they believe you or not. It could put people off as well, report and stuff. I certainly wouldn't. Even now, I wouldn't go on the Facebook sites and post what I've told you tonight. I know people are going to hear it now, but just from seeing the negative comments that people get, it puts people off. It's, it certainly put me off. I won't, wouldn't post on there become a platform for bullying and scoffing and people actually not being objective and not trying to ask objective questions. Although, in fairness, a lot of people do, but of course they could be distracted by bullies and scoffers. And also people who maybe just find it embarrassing. It's interesting how many people find, if you bring up the subject of Bigfoot and Sasquatch, which I've now been exposed to with American contacts and and having um, met the long-term witnesses of Sasquatch, alleged, I should say alleged, but they, they justified it very well. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I was over the moon and couldn't wait to tell any, everyone and anyone about my sighting, but I definitely wouldn't do that today. Not on social media, anyway. I, w- I would still tell uh, colleagues, but 
definitely not on social media, not at all. Back to the thing I was probing earlier when I introduced you, when you said at an early age you had an interest in unorthodox, weird things like UFOs and ghosts and things, that if you admit to an interest in that, people may actually think your judgment is coloured straight away and so you're not a reliable witness on, on anything out of the ordinary. What What's your view on that? Yeah, I, I agree on that. If you tell people you've got an interest in, say, paranormal stuff, ghosts, UFOs, etc., and then you actually witness something, people think that you've you wanted to see it, so you have seen it, you're susceptible to it. And again, going back to social media, now that would play a big part in whether I would mention stuff. Whereas at, at work, people knew what I was interested in. I'd like to talk about ghosts. And the amount of people who, who said they lived in haunted houses at work, it's amazing people were prepared to talk about it, but it's because it's not getting out in the wider world. It's just being kept within the people you're talking to. You can sort of control the situation and control the, the discussion. Yeah. 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 And then they're people you you know, so you can make a judgment whether you declare something. Yeah. Yeah. There'd be some people at work who wouldn't mention ghosts or Bigfoot or big cats <laughs> to, you know, like I say, people do tend to judge more on social media. They're more vocal, shall we say. I find that if people recognise that you are trying to be as objective as possible in all that you do in your discussion of it and your reporting and your analysis and consideration, most reasonable people will go with that. The problem is some people may still be embarrassed or find it's out of their comfort zone. If you come through as objective, uh, I think you've got half a chance, hopefully, with a lot of people. Do you find that? Yeah, oh, yes. Yeah, definitely. If you if you can rationalise both sides of the argument and admit that you can't be 100% sure on certain things, it definitely makes a difference compared to being gung-ho and saying, yes, I've definitely seen this, that or the other, without being able to take on board that you might not have seen, if that makes sense. Yeah, you're trying to substantiate what you're claiming, basically, which you've done earlier yeah. in this podcast, in a way. We've gone through a checklist of points, in a way, and discussed it. It strikes me that what motivates people to get interested in these things is partly that they're mysterious, but partly there is a sense of discovery, isn't it? We, you know, we're, we're trying to discover an out-of-place animal that isn't officially documented. Yeah, definitely, definitely. We want to prove it, and it just seems like Sasquatch, we can't get a decent photograph or anything, any video, even with all the technology we have these days. But yeah, that, that parallel there to actually want to prove that these things exist, yes, yeah, definitely a parallel there. Yes, and I think also parallels in people not declaring good evidence that they might have because it's so sensitive and it could rebound on them to such an extent. I think it's more severe with Sasquatch in North America because of the profound implications. But And I also think that if you do get good evidence, people believe it less because they think it's too good, so you can't win. You get a blurry photograph and it's not conclusive, or you get a crystal clear photograph and they go, well, that's just a, a, a normal cat close up. You can't win. The same with Sasquatch. You get decent pictures of Sasquatch and they go, well, it's a man in a suit. Well, like the scrutiny that the um, Patterson-Gimlin footage has had over the years, in it, you know, I think most good investigators would say it stood up to that 
remarkably well. And the more technology that's thrown at it, the more it's survived and come out well. One piece of evidence, but people still don't believe. It stood up to the scrutiny, but people still won't believe it. I think that really does show the, the issue about whether you're prepared to believe or not. If you've got a fixed position, I think you it won't influence you. If you haven't got a fixed position, I think it probably will, actually. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was listening to a, a podcast by a lady called Deborah Hatswell, I think she was called. But she does um, strange phenomena in the UK. There was a, an episode that she did on a black dog of Billingham. Now, Billingham's where that driver first told me he'd had this sighting of a big cat when it crossed in front of him. So in this podcast, she's had witnesses who say that they've been followed by a, a black dog, like a Labrador-type dog. And I wonder, I've never heard of this legend, but I wonder if maybe some of these sightings could have been a big cat, you know? What kind of dates was she referring to for those black dog stories? I think the episode was from, from around about 2019, and I think there were fairly recent stories if this was more recent, then I think there is a case of, of it being tangled up with uh, potential big cat sightings and people just sort of making a, a conclusion that it was a dog. If you were walking home, if you had no interest in, in big cats or, or any paranormal or anything like that, and you felt you were being followed by a large black animal, you possibly would think it was a dog rather than a cat. That would be your first thought, would be it, I'm being followed by a large dog. I've never heard of this legend before, but I did think, well, I know someone who's seen a big cat in Billingham. Have people just misidentified, you know? Unless it works the other way and it was a, a big dog, a black dog, it seems. Of course, it can, it can go both ways, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Back to the black dog thing and people just assuming a pacing animal that's, that's that kind of general shape at night in the gloom is a dog, not a cat whatever it was, you know, sometimes it might have been a dog, but um, or sometimes it might have just been nothing or whatever. But it does show how prone we are to what we're used to and what, what we expect. I don't think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but somebody was telling me that they were speaking with an undertaker. They asked him about whether he'd ever seen a ghost. And the undertaker said, no. He said, all the times I've been at graveyards and checked, you know, dug graves and, you know, in the evenings before funerals in the coming days, I've never seen anything spooky or spirit. He said, he said, apart from a black panther, he said, I saw the, the spirit of a black panther once, one evening in a churchyard as I was checking a dug grave. So there we go. Whether he, he did see the spirit of a black panther or a real one or or it was a missighting, sighting, but there you are. He assumed that that was a, a ghost rather than a real flesh and blood Black Panther in the churchyard. That's brilliant. <laughs> it's all about, you know, what we're used to and what we're conditioned for, isn't it? Yeah, he's more prone to thinking he's going to see a ghost, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, final question to you, Billy. What do you make of it? What do you make of Big Cats Wild in Britain? And, and what's your attitude? You know, what do you think of the bigger picture of them potentially naturalising? And what's your personal view on that? Personally, I think it's great. If they're out there living, I mean, when we're talking about people Satan's going back to the 70s, and yet there's been no one attacked by, or rather, they're not attacking people on a regular basis or what have you. And I know that on the podcast, 
you often talk about the loss of lambs and sheep to farmers. It's very minimal, any big kills from suspected big cats. So they're obviously, in my view, they're coexisting peacefully. They're not causing a problem. Every now and again, people see one. I don't think on your podcast, I've never heard anyone say that they've been threatened by any that I can recall. There have been some alleged cases of that in in the past, and I have to say we are on the case of trying to track down a couple of those people so we can hear from people who've um, and there have but there have been people who've sort of been pretty freaked out because one's been they think one's been stalking their dog and everything. So you know, it's not yeah, there can be yeah. some hairy close you know close calls, of course. Definitely, and I mean I've got two dogs and I like to walk them. I would be devastated if if one of my dogs or both of them got attacked and killed by a big cat but it it wouldn't change my attitude towards them because it it would be such a, a one-off event otherwise we'd be hearing about it all the time if they're there in the wild they're living peacefully not bothering any anyone like i say if they did take my dog yes i would be devastated but i wouldn't want to go and hunt that animal down and and kill it in revenge or anything like that it's an act of nature you know, so you think they're behaving themselves largely? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'd be quite happy for them to to live, be living in the wild, which obviously I believe that they are. We're not having, um, especially now, where everyone reports everything. You don't hear of anything, do you? You don't even even hear reportings of sightings on the news. It's only on podcasts and social media that people post things. Mind you, it's in the tabloids. The tabloid uh, websites. Yeah, but when I read them, the sidelines, the curiosity, a bit of clickbait, really. When you do see them in the paper, as interesting as they are to read, I think it's filler because 90% of their readership is just going to dismiss it. It's just there. Yeah, they can't lose. It's a talking point and you could scoff at it if you want or marvel at it if you want and you could debate it and whatever people's view is, they can't lose because it is good clickbait. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like I say, I'm, I'd be happy. I, I am happy that they're living in the wild. So, yeah, that's my my opinion. Well, finally, anything else you want to say, register with us, that you don't think we've covered? I mean, we've had a great wide-ranging discussion, and thank you for being prepared to go off the comfort zone, you know, into Sasquatch. And anything, finally, that you want to say? Just uh, thanks for having me on. I'd can I, I just add something, Rick? Mm, um, yeah. At the time, at the time of the sighting, we just referred to it as a, a black panther. Now, this will show my um, knowledge of, of uh, big cats is zero because I thought a panther was a, a type of big cat, not like a genus. So when I'd heard people say black leopard, I thought that was too exotic. You know, the, <laughs> the, the word leopard just seemed too exotic. So I, I was like, oh. I don't think it was that. It was just a black panther. <laughs> Until we can prove they're definitely leopards, or the yeah. majority are, I think it's actually you can sort of use the word, the more general term, panther, because it covers any large deer-killing size big black cat. And, of course, yeah. as, as we've said on the podcast and noted on the podcast, that in the native countries where they have um, large numbers of uh, black leopards, they call them panthers. You know, the Malay Peninsula uh, is one of the yeah. key refuges of them, and they're, they're known locally as panthers there. So it's a quite a 
legitimate term, but I know what you mean. It's like if people start referring to them as leopards, I often think in the general public, you've got to say, by the way, we mean a black one like Bargira in the Jungle Book sort of thing. You yeah. have to <laughs> clarify it. Yeah, because it does, like I say, it sounds too fanciful by saying leopard because people have, have an image of a leopard, don't they, uh, with the spots. and Yeah, this is pure psychology and I may or may not be right, but if you use the word panther, it's more abstract and not quite as sort of scary, perhaps. And if you use the word leopard, t- people tend to think, oh, that is a fierce animal that takes down you yeah. know, antelopes and whatever and got, has got some attitude about it. And good grief, I wouldn't want to see or meet one of those. But a panther, you know, uh, and I think also puma, you know, they're quite softer terms. Um, but that's, that's a personal thing. I don't know how many people would think like that, but I suspect other people think like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree totally on that, yeah. It doesn't sound as threatening as a leopard. So, yeah. You know, on this podcast, we tend to sort of use panther and black leopard interchangeably. You know, I know yeah. people have got different views on that, but I think that is okay, actually. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I agree. Did, did you go and look it up straight away? I, I know you didn't have the internet so much those days, but did you go and sort of check it up in reference books and whatever and, and consider what it was specifically? Or did you, were you happy that you'd seen a black panther and you knew that's what it was? Yeah, I, I didn't look it up at all, no. In my mind, I know what I saw, and I was just over the moon to see it. Because I suppose my only point of reference of a black cat in my way of of being interested in the paranormal was in a paranormal um, sense, not as a black cat, as wildlife. I'd seen something paranormal to, to me, if you know what I mean. So I was just over the moon with that. I didn't, for one minute, think I'd go to the library and get a book and see what cats look like. It was my Sasquatch, you know? Yeah, yeah. But you've now analysed it in more detail and in greater depth. Oh, yeah. When you get older and uh, more sensible, uh, you've got the access to the internet, then, yeah, you you can look things up, yeah. (laughs) Great. Well, thank you ever so much, Billy. I'm sure listeners appreciate this and hearing direct from a train driver has been terrific and and all that sort of wildlife experience you you have on a daily basis. uh, Very intriguing. So thank you ever so much for, for all of that and for coming on Big Cat Conversations. Thanks for having me on, Rick. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, for the first time, we've just repeated one of our words of the week because we had cheers back on episode 14, but it came up naturally in our chat there with Billy, so it seemed neat to cover it again. It comes from the term general impression of size and shape, and it gets abbreviated to GIS or JIZZ. Hopefully that bit of the conversation with Billy illustrated why jizz is relevant to the point about getting your eye in for noticing certain objects and certain animals and birds, and the point about being primed for seeing a big cat in the British landscape, if one is about. In terms of the Undertaker's panther sighting that we mentioned there, whether it was real or not, we must credit Gareth for that one. He was our guest on episode 11 when he described his encounter with a puma in his local Parkland area in Gateshead in north-east England. And Gareth was also on the show, along with his dad, more recently in episode 69, talking about sightings from both France and County Durham. 
So thanks, Gareth, because you mentioned The Undertaker's story off-air, I think, and it's been nice to slot it in a show in the conversation for this edition. OK, in recent weeks, amongst the reports and contacts, I've had three different artists get in touch. The first was Tamsin from the Cotswolds, who saw two Black Panthers in stalking mode, and you can hear her report on that one on the Radio Gloucestershire segment that's linked on our website under episode 74. That Radio Gloucestershire feature is available till 27th of May 2022. The second artist to file a report was Rowena. She was on a rural road right in the middle of Devon in April. She drove up to what she assumed was a black Labrador, and as she got closer she realised it was a big black cat. As she slowed completely, it went right across the lane in front of the car. She then checked references with me and feels it has to have been a black leopard. She had no dash cam, unfortunately, otherwise it would have been a perfect close-up recording. And the third artist to get in touch is one of our listeners, Tim Bradford. If you go to his website, you'll see he is a classy commercial artist. He hasn't seen a big cat here, but he has just produced two really striking posters, one of a black leopard and one of a lynx. The designs make the point that we're being watched by these shy animals as they go about their lives around us. They might know more about us than we do about them. Tim has sent images of the posters for our website, so you can see those under episode 75 on the References and Links page of Big Cat Conversations. And you can order a poster from Tim at £20 each. The details for ordering them are on the website. So thanks Tim, and no pressure, but how about a puma next, and maybe a Scottish wildcat? Anyway, it's splendid to have input from the arts to help fire our interests further in the topic. Righto, the next episodes coming up include Carol from Scotland, who has had several sightings in the past and many reports, and in that one, as well as black leopards and panthers, we'll again touch on these double extra large black cats that might not quite be the size of leopards, but are part of the picture perhaps. After that edition, we'll be hearing about several recent cases from parts of the north of Wiltshire. OK, we're closing out now, so thanks again to our guests Mark and Billy, and thank you everyone for listening in. Please get in touch if you'd like to on any matter. The email address is rick at bigcatconversations.com. Look forward to being back soon. Take care and bye for now.